Hey everyone, my name is Rohan Sant. And my name is Daniel Olaya. Thank you very much for joining us and welcome to another episode of the Aerospace Medicine Podcast. So our guest today is Dr. Shauna Bandia, a guest who has one of the most ridiculous TVs I've ever seen in my entire life. She's a medical doctor, pilot in training, skydiver, scuba diver, aquanaut, and a citizen scientist astronaut candidate. Wow, uh, when you say that, it's awful. It's a good laugh, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. It's a lot of stuff. Exactly. Dr. Pandya also has keen interest in education and entrepreneurship as the director of the International Institute of Astronautical Sciences Space Medicine Group and as a medical advisor to several space startups. Dr. Pandya, Shona, welcome to the Aerospace Medicine Podcast. Mm. Oh, Thank you both of, both of you for having me. This is going to be so much fun. I'm delighted to be here. We are very much looking forward to it. So, Shauna, there's a huge amount of information that's available about you on the on the internet, and it's really, really incredible to see all the things that you've done. Would you be able to, for people who aren't as familiar with it, just talk us through what's gone on in your life, as brief as you can, even though it's very, very extensive? <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to. Uh, I'm laughing because every day is like a box of medical chocolates. You just never know what you're going to get. Um, but you know, sometimes I like to joke, it's a bit of a Batman Bruce Wayne scenario, um, in that I am a full time clinician in general practice, I do a lot of mm. rural ER, I do a lot of women's health. Um, and on top of that, I do the space medicine, um, scientist astronaut candidate, um, stuff as well. And so you know, mm. it could be a day in clinic, it can be a weekend on call, it can be, mm. um, a day of, of meetings um, regarding mentoring students on developing a payload for microgravity. Um, it could be, mm. I, I also wear an entrepreneurial hat. I help develop um, virtual reality medical training scenarios for long duration space flight. Um, there's, there's so much. Wow. And so the nutshell, because I know you asked for a very brief <laughs> description, is clinician, scientist, astronaut candidate, director of the Insti International Institute of Astronautical Sciences, um, space medicine group, uh, and many, many more, but I'm sure it'll come out in conversation. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about it. <laughs> amazing. 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 Now tell us about your path to aerospace medicine. What happened? Yeah. So, um, like a lot of us, uh, who listening to this podcast, I wanted to be an astronaut growing up and I never quite grew out of it. And um, again, <laughs> dating myself here, I grew up in the 90s. And this was when Canada, um, where I grew up, had um, its second ever astronaut corps selection. And this included mm. the, the training um, and spaceflight of the first Canadian woman in space, Dr. Roberta Bondar. And so that inspired me greatly. Um, because, you know, when you're a kid, you, you very much simplify things. And so I said, okay, she's Canadian. I'm Canadian. She's female. I'm female. She's a girl guide. I'm a girl guide. So all I need to do is go be a neuroscientist, a mm -hmm. physician and an astronaut and I'm set. And so in my mind, you know, <laughs> as I thought about what I needed to do with my life, I thought, okay, well, duh, I'm going to pursue a degree in neuroscience and then medicine and then astronauts. So that's kind of how it went. And um, that was the very start of it. And, you know, there's times in your life when you, you become focused on more things than others. And 
you know, somewhere along the way, because medicine is so, um, you know, you have to be very, very focused um, on studying to get into medicine. Um, I was very focused on that by the time I finished my neuroscience degree and the application. Um, but as in, as in aerospace and in space, you always need contingencies for when things don't go your way. And so I mm. thought, I need to have a contingency plan for if I don't get into medicine and thought, what is something mm. that I would be just as thrilled to spend my time doing and learning about um, as, as if I, in case I don't get into medicine. And so for me, mm. that's kind of when the space flight dream and space exploration dream came back a little bit. And I mm. remembered hearing about something called the International Space University um, mm. which sounded like Starfleet Academy and, and really was. <laughs> and so I applied to both. I applied to medicine and ISU in the same year. And to my surprise and delight, I got into both. And then, you know, that's kind of when I said, I don't think I'm really done um, thinking about space as part of my career. And so I applied for a deferral at, at the medical school and they granted it. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the start of realizing yeah you really can make space and space medicine part wow. of your career it, it was it was really you know the it was the beginning of lifelong friendships um an education in all things space not it not just life sciences um so, so you deferred yeah so did you okay was that was that for a whole year yeah, for a year. And, you know, that was that was such a great decision. At the time, it was so full of uncertainty because I, I, I say, knew yeah. how competitive medicine was and I didn't take that decision lightly. Um, and, you mm. know, the neither did the faculty. There were people who were in the middle of completing their PhDs who had applied for a deferral to finish their PhD and then were told, mm. well, no, you applied for medicine um, in this year. So, wow. You know, I, I really, really am grateful to the the faculty um, and the the medical school because throughout my throughout my time in medical school, they really moved mountains to make make opportunities happen um, mm. or let let opportunities happen. And I think that's an important lesson that we can talk about a little bit later about the the importance of having supportive environments. Um, yeah. But to give you an idea, this um, at the at ISU, um, the the program it's a one year master's program includes a three month internship, and I was lucky enough to do my internship at the European Astronaut Center's Crew Medical Support Office. Um, okay. So mm -hmm. get that hands on experience in research as it pertains to human spaceflight. Was that so, during medical school? That was at the end of my my master's degree. Um, so that was uh, at the end of the one year program. So I moved okay. from Strasbourg, France to to Cologne, Germany, um, to conduct mm -hmm. research Absolutely. on a brand new transport vehicle at the time to the International Space Station, um, called mm -hmm. the Autonomous Transfer Vehicle. And you know, just compiling a quick reference guide of all the possible hazards that could be of concern that the that the um, flight surgeons and the biomedical engineers wanted to know about whether it was vibration, noise, um, mm. temperature, how, how could those impact astronauts? Where could we find supporting yeah. documentation? Um, so that was, you know, that was that kind of that first application of, Hey, you know, you can, you can contribute to research in really meaningful ways um, and support space, you know, space exploration, human space exploration uh, from a medical perspective. Um, and it was, it was such an awesome experience. And that was really the start of it. 
Wow. Sean, there's there's two very fascinating things that I want to touch on there. Number one is the importance of role models. And number two is this incredible sense of self-belief that is clear that you had and you have, and it's probably very important to anybody who wants to do something great. I want to know, where did this come from? Why? Oh, gosh. <laughs> what a question. Uh, you know, so coming coming to the idea of self-belief, I it's not always necessarily there, but I think this comes back to the first point mm. of having very, very supportive environments, um, you know, with family, with friends, with with um, professional and academic colleagues. And so let me give you concrete mm. examples. Um, so, you know, it's very easy to be self-deprecating and make fun of yourself. You know, you never want to be that person who who believes their own hype way too much. But sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, it can be it can be to a point where it's excessive. And I will have friends who call me out and say, you know, you don't have to do that to yourself. You know, just you, you are who you are and believe that your accomplishments speak for themselves, right? And so having people who who keep you honest um and but also let you know truly believe in in your worth is is critical on the personal mm. front um mm-hmm. also on the familial front um uh, i i don't know what generation um immigrants or what what um backgrounds you've had but perhaps you can identify with this my parents um packed up everything in their suitcases in their 20s and moved from india to canada in the mm-hmm. 80s um with the yep. hope of creating a brand new life and giving their kids every opportunity possible. And with Mm. that came the most solid stoic work ethic that you grow up thinking is normal because that's, that's your only, (laughs) you know, basis for comparison. And then when you grow up, you're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, that is actually a very excessive, but helpful work ethic (laughs) and character trait to have. And so it's, it is characteristic of immigrants. Um, and then I'd say my parents take it to a whole new level. Like there is, there's type A, then there's triple type A, and then there's, you know. <laughs> a plus. Also, yeah. And so to give you an idea, I often tell tell friends that I'm, I'm maybe the third most type A person in my family. Um, wow. <laughs> so, wow. you know, I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And then finally, just speaking to the, the, the support on the professional side, um, I've been in both very supportive environments and less supportive environments. And so in medical mm. school, I was, you know, the, I was given every opportunity um, to attend these amazing, um, amazing experiences because the faculty saw the relevance mm. in it. Um, and they saw that I was working hard to make, make these experiences happen. So, so coming to continue on with the story from, from the European astronaut center, um, mm, yeah. I, I, I was given the opportunity as a medical student to publish a book chapter on space spinoff technologies, positively impacting mm. healthcare and medicine on earth. And I did that as a second year medical student. I got to work, uh, um, on a neurosurgical robot, um, that was based off Canadarm technologies that ha- had mm-hmm. positive implications for, um, for brain surgery. And then all of these experiences made me a more credible and strong candidate for another opportunity I had been eyeing since I was a, a, in high school. And that was the aerospace medicine elective at Johnson mm-hmm. Space Brilliant. Center. I really wanted to ask you about that. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And so here's, here's where the, the importance of faculty and faculty support becomes critical because the opportunity came at the end of my final year. 
Um, it required yeah. me to miss the class advanced cardiac life support training. And it required me to miss mm -hmm. my fourth year comprehensive exam, as well as the month long review period, which are big deals. You know, they're huge. You yeah, need absolutely. that. You need that to mm. become a doctor. Mm. And so the faculty's deal was, we think this is a tremendous opportunity. I was only one of two medical students selected in Canada at that period for that, mm. um, for that opportunity. And they rearranged the comprehensive um, exam wow. schedule for wow. me. They said, they said, we trust you to do ACLS on your own, to study on your <laughs> own, and you write the exam <laughs> when you come back. Um, and then go, go forth and learn about aerospace medicine at NASA. And as a basis for comparison, I've had friends at the at other universities who had the exact same internship opportunity in other years, and their faculty would not let them rearrange the schedule. So it's so, so wow. important to have those permissive environments and seeking out those environments um, and finding one that works with you and your life goals. So Shauna, I would really like to ask you a bit more about that. How was it, especially when you started, you'd mentioned that the uh, your university had actually allowed you to defer your place at medical school. Before then, um, how did you justify it to them to allow you uh, to allow you to actually go for that opportunity and go for example to ISU and then and then go further on from there you know I think it's showing that you recognize the value of both that you realize that you can't always get what you want that you know what your priorities are and the way I phrased it to them was that you know would you please consider this um I realize it's asking a lot I realize that you know mm. I don't necessarily have the right to ask for this um and then if you make me <laughs> If you make me choose, yeah. you know, medicine at the end of the day is what I applied for. That's my priority, but please consider it, you know, and then just showing them that you have that humility, not that you're demanding anything and that you, you see a big mm. picture and that you show them the why. And I think that's kind of what helped, um, helped catalyze um, all of that. And, you know, it, it wasn't lost on me because two years into residency, I kept thinking about that. And I just sent the dean and the vice dean just a message of thanks, saying, thank you for letting that Absolutely. happen. Um, because I suspected a different medical school, it wouldn't have been the case. And, and I, we, we talked about concrete examples. And then it was so funny because I was um, in line at the Starbucks at the hospital the next day. And I saw the, saw the dean and he said, thank you so much for sending that message. You know, it shows, it, and we really appreciate that you appreciate what we did. So it was great. I think I think also sometimes medicine. I don't know what it's like over there in in, in North America, but sometimes it, you know we're quite a lot of uh, very sometimes competitive people, um, and a lot of people <laughs> yes. don't say the don't a lot of people don't say when you've done something good. So I really really love the fact that you went and thanked the people that had gotten you where to where you were and 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 everything because I think that that's something that I definitely try and make sure that I do, uh, and I I, really, I think it's really well appreciated. That's uh, so then after. After you, after you finished up with medical school, where did you go through then after that? Yeah. And so um, this is kind of where, you know, the love of medicine, the love of doing really hard, complicated things, um, and that love of neuroscience and the brain actually comes into play. Mm -hmm. So the one thing we haven't talked about is that I was kind of really torn about, um, you know, falling in love with subspecialty surgeries um, versus the mm -hmm. idea of aerospace medicine. And, you know, I, I did all of my electives in subspecialty surgery, mostly plastic surgery, neurosurgery, head and neck surgery, um, mostly those, those three specialties, um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and really, really loved it. 
Um, and so I was very torn. Um, it, it, there's, there's so much there that maybe we haven't talked about. Um, you know, I did love neuroscience from my, my first degree. Um, but mm-hmm. I'd also taken an, another year off between second and third year university to go to a place mm-hmm. called Singularity University, which was um, founded by the same people as the International Space University. And just based on how positive my experience at ISU was, um, and then looking at the mandate of SU and how their mm. whole premise was to positively impact 1 billion people in 10 years using accelerating mm. technologies and, you know, being backed by Google, being based in Silicon Valley, being based at the NASA mm. Ames campus, you know, there was so much credibility there. Um, mm. And so where that becomes relevant to the story is, you know, I really became enamored with this idea of the power of technology to transform our lives for the better. Um, we even had mm-hmm. a startup with a uh, mobile application for emergency response that we that we built a company out of. And um, I almost didn't go back to medical school because that life mm. and that that work was so uh, I was so enamored with it. And so even applying for residency, um, I, I did apply for very competitive residencies in plastics and neurosurgery. But I also almost mm-hmm. didn't submit that rank list because I thought maybe maybe I should just take a different path. Um, and ultimately I ended up submitting my rank list. So to come back to Mm -hmm. your question in a very circuitous way, um, right after medical (laughs) school, right after the Johnson Space Center Aerospace Medical Elective, I actually matched to neurosurgery at my home school. Oh, And, uh, yeah. And, you know, that was, you know, I spent three years in that specialty and having the privilege, um, and the trust of people to operate on their brains and their spines, you know, the things that let us move, that make us who we are. It was such an incredible experience. Um, And it was also, you know, very, very, uh, I guess, humbling. And it it let me, you know, let me just have a lot more gratitude for the things we take for granted, you know, um, realizing Mm. how quickly a simple trauma can change your life, you know, make you quadriplegic, Mm. paraplegic. So, you know, it was, you deal with some very, very sick patients. Um, mm. But it was, you just, you learn so much. During that time, you, you made some big decisions, which took you down very interesting paths and perhaps shaped your career and, and your life. And looking back now, what would you say and what advice could you give about making decisions like that and, and how to do that so that, you know, there's no regrets and, and you keep moving in a, in a, in a, in a nice forward path? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think, I think the, the lessons for me were, you know, don't be afraid to switch from the game plan. Sometimes you have to roll, roll with the, with life and the events as they happen. And, you know, well, as we talk about analogs a little bit later on, that's, that's the same thing with scheduling in an operational environment. You can have your path, you can have your life's plans mapped out, but you also have to keep the end goal in mind and be, not be afraid to switch the plan when it seems um, that that may be the better of uh of the you know for what you're trying to do that's why it's why i switched and went to isu um it's why i'm i am where i am today it's why i ended up switching out of neurosurgery but you also have to have contingencies you need to have a plan b c d e and f um right because you need to be able to extrapolate on 
best case scenario, worst case scenario, most likely case scenario, um, alternate mm-hmm. scenarios. And for anyone who works in emergency medicine, you're doing this on a constant basis, right? You're, you're saying, mm-hmm. okay, this patient has shortness of breath. Is it, is it something that's going to kill them? Or, you know, is it mild exacerbation of asthma? Um, mm-hmm. Right. So <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's something that I, I've learned. Um, and some, it's not easy. You know, you have emotional attachments to your life goals. Um, but, you know, really realizing that you you build in multiple scenarios and multiple contingencies um it served yeah. me well personally yeah have your life goals changed have they been consistent since then i would say that they've become more established you know to to realize that i had this goal as a child of looking up to the stars and being inspired by them and maybe even being one of those people in space and then also dreaming of doing big things in tech and being a doctor and then waking Mm -hmm. up and realizing that as an adult I'm doing all of those things and more in one capacity or another is crazy and it's so fulfilling to think that you can have multiple dreams and if you make a plan to get there and you work hard and you surround yourself with good people you can absolutely make them happen it's a balancing act and it's you know it's it's a lot of herding cats sometimes and juggling flaming chainsaws, but it is <laughs> extremely fun and it is very, very fulfilling. After that, so you've done neurosurgery, so we caught up with you at that stage. Uh, after that, Shauna, you said that you moved out and now you're obviously doing G- uh, general practice. I remember seeing the TED talk on that and how difficult that was at a time in your life. And you mentioned about switching game, you know, don't be afraid to change this game plan. Uh, what was it that triggered that switch from neurosurgery to GP? Um, and going down that route? Um, I would say there were a lot of internal and external factors. Um, And so I think internally, you know, going from someone who throughout life, I think maybe you've picked up that I'm always going a million miles a minute doing many, many different (laughs) things at one time. You know, in undergrad, I was on 10 um, students union and um, general counsel boards and committees. Mm. I was president of the Neuroscience Students Association. I was editor of two newsletters. Um, I was taking six courses, um, which when the on for an honors degree, the full course load is five, but I would want to take courses like physics and astrophysics. Like I was always going a million miles a minute. Um, and in mm. medical school, I, you know, was always very involved in different things like like art and and theater and and you know public speaking and conferences mm. um no you can't maintain that in a very very um encompassing residency and so in neurosurgery you know i'd be up at 4:15 every morning be at the hospital by 5:15 mm. um some days even when you're not on call you're there till 10 or 11 p.m. right so there's not mm. much room for anything else um and you you have to say to yourself at a certain point, um, and I'm quoting from uh, someone I once knew who said, you know, you have to look at what you're good at, what the world needs and what you're passionate about. Um, Ooh, kind of, I like that. I like that. Yeah. One. Say that again. Yeah. Say that again. Okay. So, you know, when you're looking at what to do to do with your life, you need to look at what the world needs, what you're good at mm-hmm. and what you're passionate about. Right. And if you're meeting yeah. two out of those three criteria, but there's a, place in your life where you could be meeting three, then maybe it's time to switch gears. Um, 
And so Mm. this is kind of where the external factor comes in is because in a lot of subspecialty surgery in Canada, the unfortunate reality is with um, a population of 36 million and being limited to tertiary care centers, the job situation, the job availability isn't so great. And so for a lot of surgical specialties, you need to be willing to do your six-year postgraduate training plus a PhD plus a fellowship, plus maybe an additional subspecialty training fellowship, right? So that is mm. a lot of years of postgraduate <laughs> training, right? Yeah, In addition, um, and then even then, it may be hard to find a job. You might be splitting um, a, a locum, uh, or sorry, you may be splitting a junior um, entry position with another doctor, which was the case um, at my at my hospital. You may be forced to go to the United States where, um, you know, you have to contend with the pool of um, neurosurgeons um, entering the the workforce there. Um, mm. And so looking at that, and then also looking at, you know, how, how am I going to impact this field? What am I going to bring to it? Um, and, mm. you know, my, my heart was very much still in space flight research, you know, and talking mm. about bringing things like research related to the space adaptation neuroocular syndrome, which back in my day, <laughs> I'm using air quotes here, was called the VIP or the <laughs> visual impairment uh, increased intracranial pressure um, syndrome, right? And so mm. that wasn't met, mm. met, met with a lot of um, enthusiasm, right? And it's sort of like, well, yeah. you know, if I want to do something, I want to have a lasting impact on that field. And so... Yeah. You know, all of these factors, you can't just say there was one day where it's like you wake up, and you're like, no, I'm not going to do this anymore. It was it was a very, very hard decision because mm. starting to something and not finishing it um, is something that just it, it's not something that feels good for me personally. So it was an incredibly yeah. hard decision. But looking at how things have turned out, it was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. Understood. What would you say to someone who says, Instead of focusing on 10 things at once, focus on one and finish that and then do the next thing. What would you say to someone who said that to you? There's a time and place for everything. And I'm a big fan of always being a little bit meta and being a little bit detached and objective about where you are in your life. Um, And translating that into if you are very, very focused and you're constantly saying no to things, is it time to start saying yes a little bit? And on Mm. the other side, on the flip side, if you are constantly saying yes to things and you're finding yourself a little bit spread thin, there is Mm. a beauty and there is a relief in starting to say no to focus. So there's not Mm. any one point where you can definitively say, always say no or always say yes. You have to constantly reevaluate. And for neurosurgery, the right answer was to become very, very focused. No one wants a distracted brain surgeon. (laughs) Um, and then, you know, and it also comes down to what you're capable of doing, because for me, I had to be focused. And then, you know, there's always someone who's being an overachiever and doing more with their life. Um, and one of my attendings told me about a, uh, resident who was also a professor in the faculty of engineering and managed to stay a full-time lecturer in engineering while being a neurosurgical resident. Which wow. for me, I mean, the, the guy sounds superhuman. <laughs> I definitely mm-hmm. did not 
like I, I did some undergraduate and graduate level lectures, but definitely not a full-time prof. And that sounds amazing to me. Um, so you have to look at what the situation needs and then how what you, what you need personally to excel and to be able to serve um, the roles and the populations that you've committed to serve. Indeed, indeed, yeah. What I take from that is an awful lot of evaluation and being real and looking at the end goal and yeah, j- j- just being very fluid Absolutely. You know, you, you can't be rigid. You know, there's, I know some people are very point A to point B. It has to be this way, but I found by being willing to, to take the load, to take the road less traveled sometimes, um, to, to explore alternate routes personally, it served me very well. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. So Shauna, I wanted to ask you, when did the possum involvement start? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think maybe you've gotten the sense that um, I'm the kind of person who's always looking for opportunities. It's kind of like swinging from vine to vine in the jungle. You don't necessarily know where the last vine is and where you're headed, but at least you can see the next few vines in front of you. Um, and for me, that's my comfort <laughs> level. As long as I have another vine to swing swing to, it's fine. The second I switch to... Um, to general practice, I suddenly had a lot more flexibility in scheduling. Um, Can I ask when this was in terms of which year was this? Because I'm still trying to put everything down in terms of a schedule in my head because it, it, it's obviously a very extensive. So oh gosh, what yes. sort of time was this? Yeah, so to, to give you the exact dates, I graduated medical school and finished the NASA internship in 2012. Um, yep. 2012 through to... 2014, 2015 is when I was in neurosurgery and then switching out. Mid 2015 Mm -hmm. is when I started general practice. And then that's when I said, you know, space has always been my other big passion. I want to become ensconced in space again. Um, And so then this is kind of where we, we come back to the philosophy of I'd been saying no for a very long time because of the necessary, the necessity to focus on neurosurgery. So I switched, yeah, I switched tracks to starting to A, look out for opportunity, as well as B, start seeking opportunities and saying yes to them. And so a couple of opportunities immediately came up. Um, the One of the biggest space conferences in North America is called the International Space Development Conference. And mm-hmm. my friend happened to be co-chairing that conference that year. And then... Um, I forget how it came about, but he, they had launched a brand new track and either he had put out a call for track chairs. No, I think I had messaged him saying that, oh, hey, you know, I want to be involved in space again. It's happening in Canada Mm. this year. You know, let me know if you need anything. And then he said, Mm. well, we're glad you asked because we have a brand new track that focuses on, you know, up and coming you know, blow your mind concepts in space, research, exploration, development, and startups. And we want Mm. you to be Mm -hmm. the track chair of that. And so that was the first, you know. What's a track, sorry? Oh, sorry. So it's, um, you know, when you go to a conference, there'll be, so in this case, you know, there'll be commercial tracks, there'll be a life sciences um, uh, track. Yeah. And so this one, this one was, it's just a session, like a conference session. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, and so it was. It was. We want you to be the one who finds these up and coming space 
people and startups. And we want you to curate that track and, you know, be the one who runs the show. Um, and so that was my first foray into something, to a ma- major space project right after neurosurgery. And then it's just, mm. you know, the, the rest of the year shaped up to be like that. And so then coming to Project Possum, it was simply being on social media again and then seeing that one of my friends had applied to this project um, and had put a link on it. And I said, hey, what is this? Let me let me take a closer <laughs> look. And, you know, clicked on the website, looked at the link and thought, that you know, I'm I'm back. I want to be in the space world. I want to be I'm in back. space, right? <laughs> and you know, applying and saying, "Hey, hopefully my CV is good enough to get in." And um, that was October 2015. I did the ground school and their first parabolic flight campaign, and that was, you know, you don't know what you're getting into. You, you know, it's <laughs> is it like, will this be adult space camp? Will this be something more? And <laughs> yeah. it ended wow. up being a lot more. And so, I've been involved for the past five years. So what exactly is Possum? For someone who knows nothing about Possum, what, what is it? What does it do? And who is it for? Yes. Okay. I am happy to talk about that. So like anything <laughs> in the space, Max, in the, like anything in the space medicine exploration world, Possum is an acronym and it stands for Polar Suborbital Science of the Upper Mesosphere. So officially Possum is a not profit is a nonprofit organization for citizen scientists and bioastronautics. To break that down a little bit further, the initial mandate of the program was to leverage commercial suborbital vehicles to um, further our science, uh, further our knowledge of the upper mesosphere um, and Mm -hmm. our understanding of aeronomy and aeronomy science. So with specifically the mandate of Possum initially was to um, get further information about these special little clouds called noctilucent or polar mesospheric clouds um, that mm-hmm. exist at high latitudes are relatively new to the meteorolo- meteorological phenomenon um, and that are thought to be a marker of climate change as they've become more and more prevalent and existing at lower latitudes than they have previously. And so mm-hmm. the initial mandate was to say, we'll take you know, high functioning um, candidates who have a passion for for science and exploration. So citizen scientists who may not have a PhD in aeronomy, but who are, you know, high functioning, operational, can work well in teams, teach them about aeronomy and then teach them about the science they would need to do on a suborbital flight, whether it's capturing atmospheric samples, high resolution video um, of a uh, of a PMC or an octolucent cloud. And so that was the, that was what the ground mm. school focuses on, like what the, the mission profile, working in teams, going through the simulation, exper- experiencing aerobatic flight um, uh, and those changing G loads, um, experiencing flow onset decompression in a hypobaric chamber and knowing what your personal response is um, to, mm-hmm. to a flow onset decompression. And that was the first, and then the, the first foray into possum. And that was just, the second ever class, the first uh, mm-hmm. non-beta class. And then the response was so positive. The experience was so positive. You know, the program has grown exponentially since. Um, and now, so so to come back to your original question of what, who's it for? It's for anyone who's passionate about, about this space. Um, the entry requirements to get into the ground school are to have a degree in a STEM field. A scuba diving license and 
nice to have but not need to have is your pilot's license. And then you apply to the ground school. And once you've successfully completed that, um, you become a candidate for all of the other courses like the parabolic flight campaign, the spacesuit testing, um, my class, the operational space medicine course. Um, Do you need a scuba diving license? You officially, yes, um, although it has been waived um, for for participants um, previously. Um, there's a lot of flexibility because at the end of the day, more than um, or just as important as getting good quality STEM candidates is inclusivity. And so if you don't, for example, have a STEM candidate or sorry, have a STEM degree, you can apply to the Possum Academy, which is a slightly scaled down version of the um, uh, Possum Ground School. So you get most of the same experiences and then you're actually qualified to attend all of the other courses afterwards um Mm. and kind of underscoring that commitment to inclusivity we also have branches dedicated to um promoting opportunities for women and and girls and underrepresented groups that's our possum 13 group um Mm -hmm. candidates from emerging nations so that's our space for all nations initiative and then our um our friends in the lgbtq community and that's our out astronaut initiative and so at the end of the day um you know there's space for all of us um pun very much intended and so if you have an interest (laughs) if you have an interest in this field check it out apply because you know the one thing we didn't touch upon in talking about my background is that there's no there's minimal harm in applying i applied for things i was way underqualified for all along ever since i was an undergrad just to see if i had a chance um, and, you know, it's, it's that old sports cliche, you're going to miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? And so if, you, if you're interested, but you don't think you're qualified yet, still apply, you know, um, that was my experience. That's why I applied for the 2008 Canadian astronaut selection, even though I knew I didn't have their requisite three years of STEM um, work experience, I was still in medical school, I wanted to know what the experience was like. I wanted to know what to expect and what to prepare myself for and what I should be including on my CV. It's why I applied for medical school a year before I was fully qualified to. So I knew what the essays were mm. like. So I knew what the applications would ask for. Um, you know, mm. it just really prepares tip, you. Actually. It prepares you yeah. for the future. Absolutely. Like to for the things that matter, you know, I break it down quite a bit. Um, so I don't know if you have to write the MCAT in the UK. I don't think you do. But that's the medical college admissions test. And it's kind of that screening. Yeah, we have similar stuff. We have similar stuff. Yeah. Different, yeah. but similar. Yeah. And so, um, you know, every every student, for, for the most part, has to write that college admissions test to get into medical school. And your score is considered into um, your application. And so the day before it came time to write that test, um, my family was away. And so I did a I did a dress like a dress rehearsal or test run I, I drove all the mm. way to the to the <laughs> test site figured out where I was gonna park figured out how much time I needed um yeah wow. so I was prepared right so you know I, I no definitely matter, I back that I back that I love it the, I love the it the things that matter you need to be prepared I, I, I love it and the thing is <laughs> because you did that you deserve to do well you, you deserved it yeah you, you know, know what I mean you want to set yourself up for success. And, you know, I studied like crazy. I did practice exams like crazy. Um, I ended up being top seventh percentile, which isn't bad. It obviously got me into mm. medical school. 
because but it you know it helped negate the things I wasn't prepared for in this case yeah. for the first and only time ever in my neighborhood at 3 a.m the night before the exam there were some perhaps inebriated party goers running around the neighborhood yelling out Thomas Jenny where are you and you know waking up from sleep the night before a critical exam right so that part mm. I couldn't necessarily plan for the rest of it studying preparing knowing where to go I could prepare for so you know it's I think it's an important life lesson in general no I think that's great um sure I'm just aware of time at the moment so we've talked a little bit about what citizen scientist astronaut candidates are uh, I wanted to ask one of the things that we had discussed before was why did you decide to go down the citizen scientist astronaut route as opposed to something like the military? Um, you know, from an outsider's perspective, that seems to be a bit more of a sort of um, well-trodden path, I guess. Um, so what was the reason why you decided to go down this route as opposed to something like that? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, I don't think it's an either-or phenomenon. We have great military members within our ranks at Possum. We have Black Hawk helicopter pilots. We have Special Forces veterans, um, members of the Secret Service, who've all become very wow. good friends. And, you know, like mm -hmm. when you get to this this community, you're like, what did I do to deserve to be here? Maybe they just forgot to filter out my application. Everyone is just so <laughs> high-functioning. Um, and so, you know, coming back to your question, um, if you're a military member and interested, you can certainly be within the possum ranks. And for me, um, I very much did flirt with the idea of going into the military as a doc as I was coming out of neurosurgery and deciding what to do mm -hmm. with my life. And you alluded to my my TED talk earlier, Daniel, and, you know, that's kind of when I learned about some mentalities that really helped me. Um, build my own resilience and move from mm. neurosurgery to general practice. Yes. Um, yeah. Because while working on the military base, I first, you know, encountered the idea of special operations, special forces. Wow, this is real. Like these are people. It's not just old James Bond and clandestine <laughs> operations. Mm. It's people mm. who live, train, breathe, overcome incredible environmental adversity um, incredible injury and then just get up the next day and do the same thing over. And, you know, so I, I really loved that mentality. Um, and I mm. almost enlisted, um, and to this day have friends who are reservists, um, as, as physicians who kind of mm. straddle the line between being a civilian physician and a military physician and, you know, have mm -hmm. the opportunity to train in hyperbaric and dive um, and aerospace environments. So for me, it's not off the books yet, but it comes back to that initial question of focusing when you need to, and then taking on other opportunities when the time is right. But, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, the military, Brilliant. especially in Canada for pursuing a formal path to aerospace seems to be the way to go. Um, and mm -hmm. it seems to offer a lot of opportunities and the, the friends I've made who've served, um, you know, have, remarkable experiences and skills and character and so it's 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 a path i have not pursued yet um but one that is very not off the books not off the books it's you know my my military physician friends have gained so much um from being in that operational environment yeah i want to zoom in on on that actually for a second because it's interesting and i think a lot of people in 
our different positions will consider a military path for the obvious benefits and advantages. I mean, as a citizen, half the time you you spent, you know, getting into a position where you can do some great things, but actually as a military personnel or doctor, it's just part of the job. You get to do great things and be around great bits of equipment and technology. So what advice can you give the people making that decision and how they can make it? On sorry, on choosing a civilian path versus a military path is yes, is that, yes, sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. So you know, it's you have to decide what is best for you, for your life goals, for your life circumstances, and you know, if you have a family, um, for them as well. Um, and for example, seeing one of my my close friends and colleagues, how he's um, served as a civilian physician on base. Um, at, mm. at the local base and, you know, been able to attend um, dive medical courses, <laughs> aerospace courses that he would have otherwise not had the chance to um, getting, getting the chance to, to be on deployments in very resource limited areas. You know, if that's the thing that appeals to you, um, there is so much you can get out of military life. Um, you know, when I look at my, my, Friends on the U.S. side um, who've been in special forces, special operations—they are smart dudes. Like the <laughs> yes, very much, very they much. They yeah, are Johnny Kim is um, Johnny Kim, the one of the astronauts Navy actually, Seal. just Navy Seal Harvard <laughs> yeah. Medical School. <laughs> the guy who every time I hear his resume, think to myself, "Oh my gosh, be right oh, he's back." Amazing. Need he's to fantastic. start doing more with my life. <laughs> And he's such a gentleman as well. Um, so Dan, Dan uh, I don't know if, if you know this, but Daniel knows. So I attended this um, thing at UTMB, uh, Principles of Aerospace, um, yeah. Aviation and Space Medicine. Um, and we had the fantastic opportunity being able to speak to a bunch of astronauts. And uh, Dr. Kim was one of them. And I just remember it. I was, I was what, gearing myself up to ask him a question. And I was like, oh, 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 Dr. Kim. And he was like, and he was like, Rohan, Rohan, Rohan just call me Johnny. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cool. He, when did brilliant. you, when did you do the PASM course? Uh, so PASM was run online this year in July. Was it Daniel? July. Yeah. Oh, you did it this year. Oh, that's brilliant. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's that is yeah. one of my bucket list items, and um, I absolutely I've only heard amazing things about it. So I. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's really cool. Really, really cool. Yeah, so we got sidetracked. We were talking about really smart guys in the military. Yeah, and so um, you know, if you if you love the idea of pushing your limits, if you want to figure out how to be a real life MacGyver, if you want to figure out how to, and, and you know, the, the stories these aren't my own stories, but the the idea the the stories that my friends who've been in very very destitute places how they've jury-rigged um you know uh, a makeshift hot shower how they've amplified signal mm. when signal was poor like they, they literally did macgyver solutions um and so I, i'm not i'm not a paid military recruiter but i have very <laughs> very um strong admiration and respect for Absolutely. for my friends who, who've been in these these situations and I've worked very closely with them. Many of my crewmates um, on analog missions have been former special operations, and I have learned so much from them. Mm. I think that segues really, really nicely then. Um, so speaking of analog missions, 
<laughs> Can we talk a little bit about that? What experiences have you had as part of um, as part of your analog training? I know there's quite a lot there. Yeah, sure. And so to quickly orient anyone who's not familiar with the concept, when we talk about analog environments, we talk about environments that are in some way analogous to the spaceflight environment um, that replicate some aspect of spaceflight, whether it's um, altered gravity, mm-hmm. whether it's isolation and confinement, whether it's resource limitedness, um, or some, some concept or some combination of all of those. And so for me personally, I've been lucky enough to um, serve two tours at the Mars Desert Research Station, first as a crew position mm-hmm. um, yes. in uh, 2018 and then as commander in January of this year. And so the Mars Desert Research Station is real life on fake Mars. It's a simulated Mars habitat mm-hmm. in the Utah desert, far, far away from civilization. And anytime you want to go out of your habitat, you have to suit up in a EVA extravehicular activity spacesuit so that the Martian atmosphere doesn't kill you. Um, the yeah. other analog experiences I've had, I was part of a five-day underwater aquanautics mission on the Florida Keys at the Jules Undersea Lodge as the crew physician last mm-hmm. year. That was an amazing, amazing experience living, working, doing science underwater. Um, the crew from that, I mean, the crew from all of these these missions were stellar. I keep in touch with um, at least some of them nearly every day. Um, and then I was lucky enough to do my dive medical technician training at the Aquarius Reef Base, also off the Florida Keys, um, through the World Extreme mm-hmm. Medicine Organization last year. And this is where NASA, NASA runs its NEMO or NASA Extreme Environment Mission Operations yes. um, uh, missions. So a little bit of analog experience Um as well as parabolic flight experience. Um, I've done over six campaigns mm. and 140 parabolas to date so far. So, mm. so, so it's, it's, you know, you learn a lot. Wait, wait, sorry, you, you, you've done 140 parabolic flights. Uh, parabolas. So six, seven, seven flights to date. Okay. And then you do anywhere from 20 to 30 parabolas, 12 to 30 parabolas, okay. depending on the flight profile. Okay. Amazing. Um, so, what is the so somebody might out there might ask a question? What is the why does NASA and obviously Possum spend so much money into these analog environments, and why is it important uh, medically to yes. to have those? Yeah. So the bottom line is space is hard, space is expensive, and space is trying to kill you. So you do not want mm. the first time that you practice any maneuver or procedure for real, for the first time to be in space. You want to be as prepared as possible. You want to have as many data points as possible. Um, and you want to know um, how the crew, the crew dynamics, how new technology is going to react. And so that's the value of testing in parabolic flight, in gravity offset, in isolation and confinement. So um, for example, we I've tested VR suites um, that with the company mm-hmm. I work with a underwater and in parabolic flight. We've partnered with another company to test um, biomedical sensors, again, underwater and in zero G. Um, we, uh, we have um, tested medical protocols, done medical teaching, um, and then just taking lessons from other analogs. Um, the NEMO missions have famously paired with a Canadian surgeon um, to test uh, surgical robotics uh, underwater, separated mm-hmm. by thousands of kilometers. And we did something similar on our Neptune mission, um, where I 
liaised with the head of radiology 4,000 kilometers away, and we met in a virtual um, radiology reading room to review a trauma mm. patient and a cognitive fracture. So um, the value is you're training, you're testing, you're seeing what can be made better, and then you also don't have to deal with a foreign protocol for the first time when you are in the spaceflight environment. Mm, mm. So are these analogs more about processes and protocols, or is there also a value in actual uh, data, uh, physiological data on the ground that is uh, taken from from these? Uh, For example, um, I assume that these spacesuits are mock-ups. They're not actual spacesuits that you can take up what can we actually take fr- from from this sort of data? Is it is it useful in in, in that sense? Yeah, yeah. So th- that's a that's a great question. So let's let's unpack it. And so the the answer is both. You get data as well as you get protocols and procedures, and it depends on the environment and it depends on your objective. So you're you're right in saying that at the Mars Desert Research Station we use simulated spacesuits. But when we're in parabolic mm. flight, we're testing real IVA or intravehicular activity suits. Um, when we mm. were at the Canadian Space Agency with Possum this time last year, we were testing a real EVA or extravehicular activity suit in gravity offset. Mm. And the idea is yeah, that you're trying to make it more spaceflight ready. And so another acronym that we like to use in the space world is called TRL or Technology Readiness Level, where essentially... TRL-1 mm-hmm. is maybe a concept you scrawled on the back of a bar napkin. And then TRL-9 is something that is space ready. And so with every subsequent test, you want to bring your technology one step closer um, to, to being flight ready. And so that was that's our goal with the IVA spacesuit testing in Zero-G, for example. Um, and then on the data side, for example, during our Neptune mission, so we had another acronym, which stands for nautical experiments in physiology, technology, and underwater exploration. Mm. Um, we, we wanted to look at the data of firstly looking, living and working in a saturation dive complex, um, as well as how, you know, how your physiological parameters from cortisol to heart rate variability to, um, heart rate, respirate, sleep quality, personal satisfaction, all change in that environment. So um, you can, at the end of the day, it depends on what environment did you select? What could you get out of it? And how are you going to leverage that environment to to develop? So that, that's a, yeah. Oh, sorry. No, I said that's a really interesting thing, though. So how well, uh, for example, you mentioned that cortisol changes, etc. How well did the changes that you see in the analogs reflect what's actually seen in space? Yeah, that's a great question. And so we're still processing the data from the Neptune mission. um, But one of our collaborators, one of our co-PIs on that experiment um, was actually a a psychological resilience in austere environments researcher out of the UK. Mm. And, you know, his previous his previous um, subject and study sets were ISS astronauts. And um, then he expanded to looking at groups in austere environments. And then that's how we collaborated Mm. on the Aquanaut mission. And so with, with space, the challenge is you have small sample sizes and you want Mm. to see how generalizable your findings are. And so 
um, we, we, we've seen some initial trends that kind of reflect satisfaction and sleep patterns and psychological um, well-being um, from mm. the Neptune mission. I won't, I won't definitively come and say what they are, but no, we're still in, no, still course. processing no, I them. That. I appreciate um, that, yeah. But you do, you do see some things that do, do reflect, you know, um, working and living in an ice or isolated and confined environment. And then, so for example, coming back to resilience, we've, we, which we've talked about a little bit, I've also written a book chapter on that for um, long duration space flight using data from ice and austere environments. Um, and the the data around that is the same, saying that there are people, you know, there's, I'm sure there's people listening to this podcast and saying, why? Why would you do that? That seems very uncomfortable. <laughs> why? why would you? It seems very inconvenient. But there, there are personality types out there who rise to the occasion, who love that, who, um, and, and this, the psychology term for that is salutogenesis. You, you develop personal growth from being in a place like Antarctica and you, that you get mm. the personal satisfaction, the personal growth. How do you spell that? How do you spell, um, how do you spell that? S A L U T O G E N E S I S. Wow. Um, and so this, this kind of goes into the realm of pop psychology or positive, not pop psychology, but positive psychology, not just looking at pathology, but looking at, you know, performance and how do we make it better? And the data around the personality types um, uh, that are resilient and who have superior coping skills. And so um, there's data around resilience. It's not just some people are more resilient than others, but um, we know resilience figures heavily into success and performance. And that's true of special operations. It's true of astronauts. It's true of Antarctic crews. And we know that these are the people who can break things down, rely on their social support networks, engage in positive self-talk, um, demonstrate impulse control, that is, demonstrate the ability to to resist the urge to give up or to get angry or frustrated, um, and then just break things down into step-by-step um, chunks and not look at, you know, oh my God, I have 12 months in Antarctica, but oh, what am I going to do this week? Um, yes. So so it's it's important to know that data and and see you know, how, how it's reflective of good crew dynamics, and then maybe how we can also apply it to our own lives, especially in a very unusual year where most of us have been forced to live in an isolated and confined environment. Exactly. Exactly. So go on, Daniel, sorry, go on. Now with, with these analogs, um, for people thinking about doing one or applying to one, what advice can you give? Um, I mean, surely, taking two weeks out of a busy schedule if someone's a clinician or someone's busy in the lab that's that's a big undertaking is there any possibility of engaging in analog actually remotely is that is that possibility oh gosh that's such a great question um if you are interested there will be a role for you whether you want to go in as a co-pi as a as a co-investigator, if you want to go in as mission support, um, I've been mission support on an analog mission before, and then you just sign up saying, These, this is the two-hour slot I'm going to take today to be your ground control or your medical support. Um, so, you know, even just learning and reading about these environments, and then to take it to the other extreme, um, maybe you're a physician who can't afford to take two weeks off, but 
there are opportunities that are paid for a much, much longer period of time. And so specifically, I'm referring to the MD researcher position at Concordia Research Station that's supported by the European Space Agency. And you're essentially paid to be the MD, the doctor who heads up all the research at Concordia for a period of 12 months. And so hmm. um, if you really want to push the limits and challenge yourself, um, try isolating yourself away from, from Earth, uh, from the rest of the planet for 12 months in the most re remote location where it gets down to minus 80 degrees Celsius um, and wow. living with a crew of 12 to 14 for that period of time. Wow. Wow. Um, Shauna, tell us a story. Tell us something that happened when you're on analog mission isolated on another planet. Oh my goodness. So many stories. So I have to say, first and foremost, the crew will make or break your your mission and crew dynamics is so so important and you'll you'll laugh together you'll go through tough times together and you know you'll also bond together um and so the, you know there'll be little in jokes that you have um that you can just say one word and you'll immediately know what the other one's talking about months or years later um and so coming back to you i referred to i've learned a lot from my my military and special operations colleagues um and uh, one key lesson is that look to make your mission a little bit better every single day. And this this isn't something, an insight that I had, but a friend of mine who's a former Green Beret um, was mm. deployed in the most remote location in Africa. And, you know, he was telling me that's something that he learned. And so that was something that really stuck with me throughout our mission and then to kind of take that point home a little bit further, one of my really, really good friends, um, he's a Norwegian physician. He was on my last um, analog. And we, we had, our, our mission was unique in that we were one of the first, we were the first station to station mission on Mars. So we had established a second remote station. And so for one week you would spend in the actual habitat. And then the second half, the second week you would spend in these these tents in the Utah desert in the middle of winter. So don't expect to be warm or comfortable. But what he'd done, and I have no idea how he thought <laughs> to do this, is he brought these tiny little glow-in-the-dark stick-on stars. And so when it was our chance, so I was a commander, he was my executive officer, it was our turn to go to this, this remote, cold, very, very bare-bones station. One night in our tent, he just thought to put up these glow-in-the-dark stars. So even though we couldn't go outside and see the beautiful night sky, we still had a night sky to look up at. And it's just the morale boost and like the thought of, you know, he was doing it to yes. make the mission better was just incredible. And I, I mm. think, you know, that's one of the biggest takeaways um, that, I, that I've taken from my missions. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Is it dangerous? Yeah, I think um, you're accepting some degree of risk and depending on the fidelity of the analog, um, absolutely. You know, when you are at the Mars Desert Research Station, you have no cell service. You're in Mars sim. So if you're doing the fidelity, if you're maintaining the fidelity, you don't have real-time communications. Um, you are very mm. limited on the amount of bandwidth you have um you don't have enough bandwidth to load up like if you load up facebook that could easily eat up your data allotment for the day and you still need to sub mm. you need to input your 
your um, mission reports and you need to allot enough uh, enough data for that. Um, so there have been cases, you know, there've been, you know, if you, if you flip an ATV while on, um, an EVA, if you break something, you are still remote and you need to figure out how you're going to stabilize your, your crew member and then get them to, to definitive care. Um, Mm. you know, you risk having someone airlifted out, um, at the, Jules under sea lodge, we were at 20 feet of depth, so no decompression time. So if there's a fire in the hub, you can straight up evac. Um, but you know, you're underwater, so you have to take necessary precautions, always maintain and check your dive gear, make sure you have enough oxygen left in the tank. You don't want to break simulation. Like that's a cardinal sin of being in an analog. So you, you don't want to un- unnecessarily surface. Um, and then when you take it a step further, if you're in a place like um, Aquarius reef base, where you're suddenly at 50 feet of depth, once you've spent 24 hours in saturation, you cannot immediately evac to the surface, you have to decompress for 15 hours and 47 minutes, unless you risk a dive injury. If you are a winter over in Antarctica, you know, for six months of the year, there's no access to the outside world. So um, you know, there's that famous story of um, the Soviet physician, uh, I think it was Leonid Rogozov, where he diagnosed an appendicitis on himself as a winter over yep. in Antarctica. Yep. Uh, yes, yes, yes. And yes. he took out his own appendix. Like, you Wild. have, this is a physician audience. So I invite everyone to go through the mental, uh, the mental exercise of, you know, landmarking the incision point and just going through the <laughs> mental exercise of saying, could you remove your own appendix? Because that's a lot so there the higher fidelity you go the more the more risk there is even in parabolic flight which may be an hour hour and a half flight you know you're risking motion sickness nausea um not getting your mission Mm -hmm. objectives accomplished so yeah there will always be risk the question is how do you plan for it how do you identify it how do you mitigate it um and that's something you always need to be thinking about uh, regardless of the environment fascinating um now with these analogs again i understand that there is a competitive application process actually um i've actually just been applying to one um so i'm i'm experiencing all the different thought processes that i would need to go through for the application process i recently had an interview but i know that people listening may want to do it so and and they may need to propose a research project which is very important mm-hmm. um someone and and w- what advice can you give to someone thinking about what they you know might look at or how they can prepare to have sure. something to look at so do your homework look at what's been done before don't you know even if something seems cool to you by all means pursue it but come prepared to make sure that you've looked through the literature and make sure that this hasn't been done um, many many times before or if it has how are you going to add to that body of research um, what is your pre and post mission plan for dedicating time to that data? Because an analog is fun and it's easy to get wrapped up in that. But if you're serious about publishing and research and contributing to knowledge, then you need to make a game plan for um, incorporating that into your post post analog life scenario. Um, don't be afraid to to apply. You know, go go in with a set of mission objectives. Share those objectives with your crew so you have that same mental model. Um, and then, you know, apply, show that you have an interest in this, show that you have a plan for contributing to science and that and and knowledge and that you're not there for a glorified camping trip. Um, 
And then also ask yourself, be very, very mindful of what you personally want to get out of this. Um, because an analog expedition is a opportunity. It's an opportunity for growth. Um, it's an opportunity to push your own limits, whether it's yeah. through, um, you know, there's so many ways challenging yourself to do things you may have not previously living, living with, you know, a set of set of individuals um, in a very confined space. How are you going to mitigate crew tensions? Uh, what role do you want to take this time? What role do you want to take in the future? Um, there's mm -hmm. so many ways to go about thinking about it. But the first step is start looking into the analog that you you want to go to um, and think about what you want to get out of that from a research and professional standpoint, as well as a personal standpoint, and then just do your homework, come prepared. Understood. Thank you. Thank you. So, Sean, I'm conscious of, of time as well. I don't want to take up um, a huge a huge amount of that, but I'd love to move the conversation forward. So you mentioned a little bit about, you know, what do you do if one of your crew has an injury when they're at the Mars Desert Research Station? Um, and how do you tackle that? So that kind of leads quite nicely on to why do we need doctors in long-term spaceflight? Oh gosh, that is an awesome question, and one I'm happy to talk about. And so, um, do we need doctors? Do do we? No, why do we? <laughs> That's a great question. So, I mean, if you, the bottom line is, you want to set yourself up for mission success, and to succeed, you need to be mindful of both the mission objectives as well as the threats to those objectives. And you also, to achieve those objectives, you need your crew and you want them to be performing at their optimum level. So um, you don't want them to arrive decompensated or too demoralized to work. So that's why health and health maintenance matters. So then dissecting that question a bit further, um, how do you maintain health on Mars or how do you address medical scenarios? Um, and this kind of translates into the bigger picture of what kind of crew training do you need? And so by way of background, on the International Space Station, there is a crew medical officer who has 40 hours of medical training. And then the evac evacuation time um, to get to Earth, say there's a medical emergency, from the second you hit the evacuation button to the second you get into the Soyuz and land in Kazakhstan, it's about three and a half hours, um, depending on kind of what's on the orbital um, mm -hmm period, it can be six to 24 hours, but it's, it's pretty quick. Um, for any one of us who's worked remotely, you, you are that remote in, you know, rural Canada, for example. Um, and so by the time you get to the moon, it's three to five days evacuation. And then by the time you get to Mars, it's a six to nine month one way journey <laughs> with a yeah. up to 46 minute round trip delay. Um, and communications. Um, and so you really need to increase the independence of your crew, as well as the preparedness. Um, and so you kind of get into what I like to jokingly call super prolonged field care. So it's not just pre-hospital care. It's not just stabilization for a few hours or a day. It's stabilization, mm. perhaps at a life support level for weeks or even months. So... Mm. The, the short answer is I firmly believe that you will need a crew, a full on crew physician for the moon, uh, especially Mars. Um, you really want a generalist mm -hmm. who's kind of a Swiss army knife of a physician who has both 
um, primary care as well as life uh, basic advanced life support, basic critical care, emergency um, uh, emergency care skill sets, as well as perhaps even basic mm-hmm. surgical care. Um, so then how do we train the rest of the crew? Because even despite all that, well, if your doctor is the one who falls and sustains a severe <laughs> head injury, well, then you're back to square one. And so then the question comes back to you, well, how do you train um, the rest of the crew? So then maybe there is still is the role for the crew medical officer who has that at least 40 hours of training. Um, and then maybe you should stipulate that it's kind of like the president and vice president never flying together on Air Force One. Um, maybe mm. you should have the EVA rules such that both those individuals don't go out together. Um, mm. And you also need to increase your technologies that will enable you to to perform basic diagnostics as well as decision making, um, as well as therapeutic decision making. Um, so coming back a little bit closer to earth and to answer the first part of the question is what does that training look like in an analog environment? And so on the on my most recent um, MDRS rotation, myself and my exo, who the Norwegian physician, we took some time to teach the crew principles of um, austere environment assessment, triage and treatment. And that's actually what we teach the the students in my operational space medicine course at Project Possum. Mm. We take we take individuals with not necessarily a medical background. And then we teach them, you know, the the ABCs, you know, how do you how do you determine what is important first? How do you assess that? Um, And then Mm. how do you how do you approach, um, you know, the the decision pathway? And then how do you treat um, conditions that are most likely to come up um, uh, in, a, in an austere environment, particularly in, in space flight. And so um, that's the approach that we take. Um, and then just to throw another wrench into the subject, uh, I recently heard that the amount of medical equipment planned for the moon is capped at 30 pounds, so about 14 kilos, oh. right? So now... Oh, wow. now now think about everything that could possibly go wrong. Does that wrong. include your bandages, etc.? I, you know, I hope not. I um, need to look into <laughs> this more. Uh, but, you know, if you go through the thought experiment of how do you pack your medical supply kit for a hike versus a camping trip versus four weeks in the field versus the moon when you can only get to Earth in three to five days. Um, it's an interesting mm. thought experiment. Um, and then the question is, is that per permission? Is that, you know, based on the total amount of mass and volume um, that you have on the moon? What what can you build up over time with resupply? And then how do you build that up? Do you go with um, immediate BLS, basic and advanced life support, and then slowly make your way from that to primary care to um, a basic OR suite and ICU? Um, what does that look like? So there's so many questions um, to yeah, think about is. that are really fun to think there about is. and keep me up at night. Yeah. But um, yeah. it's, such, it's so fascinating um, to spend mm. time thinking about They're quite about controversial. It. Yeah. They're quite controversial too. And, and I think just uh, encapsulating what you said, I think we can all agree based on what you said um, that, yes, we do definitely need doctors. So th- thank you for that beautiful explanation behind that. Mm. that, that that's great. And I think the next thing you, you mentioned, uh, a generalist um, with experience uh, in different specialities, like you said, um, acute care, 
course, uh, advanced life support, um, life support mm-hmm. systems. And, and actually, there's a lot of uh, literature on, on what the profile of this uh, medical professional actually looks like. Um, there's stuff that talks about an intensivist, perhaps an ER physician, um, perhaps uh, an anesthesiologist or anesthetist, like we call it over here. Um, and there is, it's, the, the debate is quite hot, actually, because when you start talking about Mars, you're talking about trauma, you're talking about surgery, you're talking about, you know, quite intense skills, which need a lot of practice, actually, a lot of expertise, which generalists perhaps might not have. I don't know what kind you think of, about that. Kind of. That's an excellent point. But the question is, if you have the skills, but you don't have the equipment, how useful are you? So to this, I'm going to point you and the listeners to the recent um, most definitive guideline on CPR in space yet that came out from um, one of the European Space Agency medical groups. Um, and, you know, they look at every aspect of the pathway, but they also make the point that if you achieve, if you successfully get return to spontaneous circulation on the moon, then what? Do you have a ventilator? Do you have a definitive <laughs> airway? Do you have mm. central lines and pressors? So <laughs> you could be the most talented neurosurgeon in the world, but if you don't have an EVD, an extraventricular drain, um, what good are you, right? So you need to yeah. consider the context as well as the skill set. Um, right. And you need to think about how, how far are you going on, on this pathway? If you are a general surgeon with a trauma, um, specialization, well then do you have, you know, packs of red blood cells that you can transfuse? Do you have an ICU you can take your patient to afterwards? Um, and that also kind of takes us to the, into the domain of ethics. Like, is it more ethical to, to, go through the full CPR pathway, knowing that you don't have the necessary equipment to support um, your your astronaut um, after you've gotten mm. c- circulation back? Um, is it unethical to not indulge in any measures, knowing that there's a chance to save their life? Or is it engaging in futile measures? Um, and that's yeah. that's a whole new can mm. of worms we don't have time to get into. But there's so many mm. questions about how do we go about this? But then to yeah. you know play the other side of the spectrum, at some point, somebody has to be the first. There, there was the first colony in Jamestown. There was the first baby born in Jamestown. At some point, there's going to be a first yep. It's just that how do we go about that acknowledging risk, mitigating risk, and maximizing our chances for success? Indeed. Wow. Wow. Very good. The, the, the debate continues then. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Happy to continue this because there's so many ways this can go. Yeah. Excellent. Rohan, go ahead. No, I was just, so you mentioned about these basic levels of skills and you mentioned a few things like ALS and and, and BLS as well. I wanted to know uh, very briefly, because I know that we are a bit short of time, to our listeners out there who have got a medical background and maybe thinking about how they would be the most useful in those environments. Is there anything in particular course-wise or skills-wise that you would recommend that they go down in order to be as useful a member of that future group? Oh gosh. Um, so uh, this is kind of for this, the, the non-medical practitioner who would like to go to Mars. Is that kind of the scenario we're looking at? Well, I was thinking more in terms of, say you've got somebody who's just finished medical school. They've obviously heard about aerospace medicine. It's getting a bit more and they're thinking that, okay, I'd love to be part of that crew that maybe goes up to Mars. How would I, um, 
how can I maybe structure my career? How can I, what courses could I do to make sure that oh, I would, gosh, a useful yeah. in yeah. particular? So speaking specifically to medical professionals, um, you know, seek out on the on the training and knowledge side, seek out the short courses um, that, you know, that cater to this. And so one off the top of my head, Rohan, you'd already talked about is the um, University of Texas Medical Branch Principles of Aviation and Space Medicine course, the UTMB PASM course. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe that one's open to international. Um, it's certainly, uh, it's certainly, well, obviously it's open to international, um, <laughs> students, sorry. Uh, it's and then I've heard amazing things about it. Um, the, the Knowles National Outdoor Leadership School, um, wilderness medical provider and wilderness upgrade medical provider course. So really how do you as a physician being in a wilderness scenario, deal with assessment, triage, and treatment. That one's a great course. Um, if you come through POSSUM, the our operational space medicine course really teaches those principles. Um, for those who are part of it um, uh, or interested in, there's the ACE, the sorry, the ESA space physicians course. Um, so mm -hmm. this actually was open to not just East ESA and cooperating member states, but um, um, international participants as well. Mm -hmm. So because of COVID, they're running online this year and um, mm -hmm. they uh, will be running their physician course in January, but keep an eye out for that call for announcements because I think it's a yearly um, uh, course. Mm. Um, and then, so those are the short courses and then looking out for the conferences like the aerospace, um, medicine association conference, there's the main conference that happens in, in somewhere in the States every year. Um, as Nevada well as, this year, it was, Reno um, this yeah, year, yeah. yeah, it'll be Reno, Reno in 2021. And then there's also yes. the European component. Um, they were supposed to be in Paris this year, but have obviously deferred, um, because of the coronavirus. So for the European counterparts, there is there is also um, a, a European component. Um, the International Astronautical Congress, which is all comers in space, not just medicine, but, you know, there's dedicated mm -hmm. medical tracks. Um, and then just look for projects, look for startups, look for, you know, figure out how and where you want to contribute in this field because space mm -hmm. and space medicine is a huge field. You know, it's just, it's mm -hmm. the operational aspect. It's the countermeasures aspect. It's, it's the radiation. It's the dust. It's the psychodynamics. It's the altered circadian rhythms. Mm -hmm. Figure out where you want to contribute, how you want to contribute, mm -hmm. where you can make a difference. And then, then start mm -hmm. looking and reading through that literature. Mm -hmm. Wow. Wow. Rohan, Shauna, this conversation that there's so much to talk about. There's, we really have just touched the tip of the iceberg and, you know, I, I hope we get more opportunities to, to share um, knowledge and share this discussion with, with Shauna uh, on this podcast. Rohan, is there anything else you we, we should touch on before we start closing? I think that we've covered absolutely everything. Shauna, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and, you know, if anyone who's heard Shauna talk knows that she's an absolutely phenomenal speaker, but obviously a really great person as well. So thank you so much for taking the time and, and having a, and coming onto the podcast today. Mm, mm. Thank you. Salutal so Genesis and <laughs> analogs and life stories and grit and resilience and, and not just career, not just academics, but life. Well, thank you for having me. I, I love that we can talk the medical talk and the medical aspect of this. Um, you know, so this was really, really fun for me. So thanks so much for having me on. 
Hey everyone, thanks for downloading and listening to our podcast. We hope that you gained a lot from it. And if you'd like to hear some more stuff like this, much more, make sure you subscribe on whichever platform you found this on. And if you like what you heard, drop us a rating too. You can also give us a follow on our social media accounts. We are at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. And once again, that's at Aeromed Podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we like to hear your feedback. Of course, improve. So let us know your thoughts by emailing us at aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. That's aerospacemedicinepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, though, thanks so much again for listening. Stay safe, keep aiming high, and we will see you very, very soon.